The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we're starting our summer preaching series through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we are using the text of the Apostles' Creed article by article to work our way through uh, what the Bible teaches about these various things. Uh, so we had just finished Ecclesiastes, but let me invite you, we're going to open up to the book of Hebrews together in the New Testament. It is on page 1007. We're going to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning as we consider the first uh, very opening statement of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, I believe. So Hebrews chapter 11 is where uh, you need to find yourself this morning. Turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll be reading the first uh, six verses, but especially focusing on verse 6. Now, the, let me tell you just up front, the reason why the reason why we are going through the Apostles' Creed together, the reason why we are doing this preaching series uh, is because the church in every age needs to be clear about what it believes. Not only the church corporately as we gather together the people of God, not only does the church corporately need to be clear about what we believe, but you as an individual Christian believer need to be clear about what it is that you believe. Now I know some of us, if we were put on the hook and someone asked us, tell me what you believe, we could find ourselves in some varying level of comfort to be able to articulate what we believe as a Christian, but perhaps somebody asking you and putting you on the spot saying, what do you believe, uh, would, would, would make kind of chills go up your spine and you'd get all clammy and you're not quite sure, you know, what do I say? What is it that I believe? We want to, as a church of Christ, be able to articulate clearly what it is that we believe. So this morning, we're considering what it means even to believe. What does it mean to believe? So. We're turning to Hebrews 11, and as we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come now turning to your word, praying that by your spirit that you would move upon us to give us insight, wisdom, illumination, understanding that the things that you have revealed for our good might likewise be received by us for our profit of growing in grace and strength. Lord, bless now your word to us as we believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, hear the word of God from Hebrews 11, at verse 1 through verse 6. This is the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? What do you mean when you say, I believe something? Our text explores this. We'll summarize it uh, briefly here. What you see to the question, what is faith, is an answer in verse 1. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is to say, that's what faith does. It produces assurance and conviction. But what does it mean to both profess and possess faith? Another way of asking it is, how is it that a person arrives at the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen? How do you get there? What does it mean to believe? Well, this section of Hebrews is telling us, by way of examples, what true faith looks like. What true faith looks like. True faith believes that God created the world from things invisible, is what verse 3 says. In verse 4, true faith offers the best aspects of our lives to God, referencing uh, the the Son. By faith, Abel offered to God, verse 4. True faith causes us to walk according to God's will and believes in Him, even when we don't understand everything, relating to us the story of Enoch, verse 5, and then verse 6, which is our text for this morning that we're thinking deeply about, verse 6, how faith and pleasing God are related, verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so this section is speaking of those who have been rewarded or blessed by God because of their diligent seeking of God by sincere faith and belief. So then let's answer the question. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe? What do you mean when you say you believe something? After all, this is how the Apostles' Creed begins. I believe. And then what follows is a whole host of truths. But what are we saying about those things when we say we believe them? This is very foundational, isn't it? For many people, when they say I believe something or I have faith in something, they think it's just you know casual acceptance of things that they presume to be true. That they hope are true, maybe, or that they are sure that are true. Oftentimes, when people speak of what they believe, it is oftentimes with reference to a large spectrum of certainty. I, I believe this is true, you know, with a question mark at the end, or I hope this is true, or I know this is true. That is to say, I can subjectively believe in aliens and UFOs and alternative life forms, but my subject, subjective belief in those things doesn't necessarily have a bearing on whether or not these things are objectively true. My subjective belief doesn't have consequence on whether or not these things are objectively true. So some people could say, well, I believe in the fact that gravity doesn't exist, for example. Somebody could say that. For other people, when they speak of belief, 
They don't mean their subjectively held kind of personal beliefs. They might mean, I believe in certain principles. Other people use the concept of, I believe in this, as if to say, I believe in these principles. So for example, American citizens could say, I believe in democracy. I believe in representative government, or more civically stated appropriately, I believe in a republic, right? A principle that I adhere to that guides my life. But is belief in God the same type of belief as a wild conjecture about something that we can't prove, as in the case of alien life forms or whatever else? Is belief in God the same sort of belief as wild conjecture of subjectively held beliefs? And is belief in God the same thing of the assertion of principles? I want to say no, it's not the same thing. These things do not hold equal level of conviction, and they should not. So what should your deepest convictions be about? What should your most sincerely held beliefs uh, be? And what does that mean to hold them? For the Christian believer, our most sincerest convictions should be those truths which we believe about God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. What we believe about God. So we return to verse 6. As we see the writer of Hebrews saying, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, this is what we mean when we say we believe in something. This is what we mean when we say we have faith in something. Because it was during the time of the Protestant Reformation uh, in the mid-16th century when a really strong definition of faith was set forward. And that was necessary because people were asking all sorts of questions such as, what am I supposed to believe in? And who am I supposed to receive it from? How should I believe? Who should inform my beliefs? What should I believe and why should I believe it? Should I believe it because the authority of the church has told me so? Should I believe it because the authority of my priest has said it so? Why should I believe what I believe? And the response was that we are to believe about God what he has revealed to be true about him in the scriptures where he speaks authoritatively to us. And so faith, therefore, has three components. Faith has three components. And I'll give them to you, first of all, in Latin, because that's how they're historically given. A notia, an ascensus, and a fiducia. And I can, we can easily translate these things. Church history easily translates them to them. Faith has three components, and they're these three things. The first one is notia. And notia means content. The first thing that we have to do is believe something some assertion, some truth, some statement. Nosha is the content of our faith, those things that we believe, because we must place our faith in something, or more appropriately, we would say, someone. We must know something about that someone, or in the words of Hebrews, we must believe that he exists. So the first step of believing, the first step of faith, is Acknowledgement, isn't it? Church history says it's the notia, it's the content. We believe that God exists. 
Now that's just the first step because that's not all. It's not enough to just believe that God exists because you have to answer the question, well, what do you believe about that God that you say exists? And what God are you talking about? Everyone believes that God exists. Everyone believes that God exists, even the atheists, because they're simply denying the reality that they are repressing. You ask the atheist, what is it that you're denying? Everybody believes that God exists. That is the notion. That is the content. But there is a second element here because we have to do more than simply acknowledge that there's a content. Secondly, there is an ascensus, which is a conviction. Not just the acknowledgement of a truth, but a conviction about the truth that we acknowledge. You can know about the Christian faith and yet not hold that it's true. Like all of my religion professors in undergrad, teaching religion courses, but absolutely denying the truth of the gospel. You can know stuff about Christianity and not be convicted that is true. That's why a census or conviction is important. Millions of people know one thing or another about Christianity, but it doesn't mean that what they believe is true, and it definitely doesn't mean that they necessarily understand it. People know plenty of things about Jesus, perhaps, or about Christianity in general, but that doesn't mean that they have a conviction about it. Genuine faith says there is content, and I have conviction about the content. And thirdly, this third element of fiducia, fiducia is trust. Personal trust and reliance. Knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith is not enough because the book of James says that even the demons know, but faith is only real biblical faith if in the knowing and in the conviction it results in personal trust. So these three elements, knowledge, conviction, and trust. Knowledge, conviction, and trust is what we mean when we say, I believe something. Now, you believe in your physician, so you receive their course of treatment. You take the script that they give you and have it given to you in a form of medicine that you take. Because there is a response of obedience and trust to that which you say you believe. And if we obey our physicians for the course of treatments, how much more does the Christian believer understand that if there is a belief and if there is a conviction, there must be a necessary trust of obedience by giving ourselves to this God. And so, knowledge, conviction, and trust, all of that, knowledge, conviction, and trust is all contained when we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe. I assert to the existence of this reality I am convicted of the truthfulness of this reality, and I am trusting in this reality. That's what we mean when we say, I believe. So, not only do I know this to be true, I am convicted in trusting. That's why a creed is called a creed. The word creed is from the Latin verb credo, which means I believe. A creed means to assert my trust. The word creed also more fully translates to I give my heart to. 
So when I say I believe, again, keeping in mind this knowledge, this notion, conviction, trust, it is not a, you know how children do or used to do, they say, oh, I'm going to say something, but I'm going to cross my fingers and, you know, put them behind my back, right? So that I'm saying something, but I'm not really representing, right? Now, when the Christian believer stands to say, this is what I believe, we are saying, this is the knowledge, conviction, and trust of my heart. This is the knowledge, conviction, and trust of my soul. It is the language of profound commitment, not simply a list of statements giving intellectual assent, which is why the early church was persecuted for their faith as they articulated this. It takes courage to be a Christian. And when we say, this is what I believe, it is supposed to infuse that courage into us. That's why the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the truth of God that Christians were giving their hearts to. In the early church, the Apostles' Creed was used to identify one another as fellow believers. The Apostles' Creed was also used to be the syllabus or the outline of faith that new Gentile converts would be taught as they made their profession of faith in Jesus. And we have a membership class here at our church. It's three weeks long. The membership class of the first century church was three years long. And early converts, early Gentile converts, would be taught this creedal summary of the Christian church. And then on the Saturday eve of Easter, would profess their faith and then be baptized on Easter Sunday, after three years of instruction in the doctrine of the church, namely the creed itself. It's very important that as we go through this summer, the study of the creed, that we articulate the fact that the Apostles' Creed is not on the same level of authority as the scriptures. We speak of the Bible as the sole authority for faith and practice, but creeds and confessions, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechisms, these things are helpful tools and resources for the church to use insofar as they summarize the Bible's teaching. But we use the language of a secondary subordinate standard to communicate that the Apostles' Creed is not the Word of God. The Bible is. But the Creed is helpful in the fact that it summarizes what the Bible teaches. You'll notice as we go through the Apostles' Creed together that it has a Trinitarian shape. We confess God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And by that confession, we are saying this is what we believe and also this is what we do not believe. It is the gospel proclamation of essential truth of the Christian faith. And throughout church history, the Apostles' Creed has been used along with the Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments to form the most essential truth that Christian believers need to know. This is important for us to understand because as Christians, we don't believe in belief. We don't just kind of say, well, I believe that this is true, but I'm not sure. No, when we say this is what we believe, we are saying this is what we know to be true, what we are convicted about, and what we are trusting in. And when you and I, as a church, stand up and say, in response to the question, people of God, what do you believe? 
you respond as I believe and so forth. What are you doing? You're not just, you know, repeating a formula. You're not just kind of repeating patterns that maybe some of you grew up with or you're not just learning a new formula that you, you've never seen before. What you are doing when you say, I believe, is you are saying, I am identifying myself with the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I am identifying myself with his heavenly kingdom and saying, this kingdom is a kingdom that I live in by faith. And you'll notice that the way the creed is expressed is it, is it expressed in the first person. Meaning, you say, I believe, not we believe. Why is that? It wouldn't be wrong to say, we believe. But when you say, I, when you use your own voice, what you are saying is, this is the sincerely held conviction of my heart. It might also be the sincerely held conviction of your parents and your grandparents, and I hope it is. But their faith is not necessarily carried over to you for the sake of your own trust. You must believe for yourself. You must use your own voice with your own air from your own lungs to say, this is what I believe. And when a group of Christians together say, this is what I believe, we are corporately saying, this is what we believe. And that is very important because it shows us what is primary. It shows us as an act of allegiance who we identify ourselves with. When you and I confess the Apostles' Creed as a summary of the Bible's teaching, it is an act of both allegiance and rebellion. It is an act of allegiance insofar as we are saying, I am identifying myself with this kingdom. It is an act of rebellion, isn't it? As we say, we are not bowing down to another king. Think about the first century, think about Caesar declaring that all Christians say that Caesar is Lord. When the Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord, it was by an act of rebellion. And we don't live in the first century. But let me ask you, are there pressures all around you demanding that you bow down to something, declaring it to be the ultimate authority over your life, declaring that you must submit in everything to this person or that institution or this revolution? Yes. All around you is a demand for you as a Christian believer to assert to, agree with, be convicted about, all manner of things. But when you as a Christian believer are asserting the truths of the creed, it is by an act of rebellion to say, I am not living in that kingdom. I will not bow to that king. I bow only to God himself as he revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's so important today, isn't it? That we get that right. One faithful Christian from another generation, many of you know his name, C.S. Lewis, he said it this way about his belief in Christianity. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun rising, but because 
by the sun rising, I see everything else. That is to say, Lewis is saying, I believe in Christianity because it tells me the truth, not only about Christianity, but about everything. My Christian faith forms the knowledge, conviction, and trust about what I believe about everything. By our confession, we formulate a view of the world and of life. That's why, dear friends, studying the Apostles' Creed in the year 2021 couldn't be more relevant for you and for your family. It's deeply important and necessary that we know what we believe. Because we live in a, if you haven't figured it out, postmodern, post-Christian era of history, and we are in the midst of a massive moral revolution when people are saying, this is true. And we are confronted with that everywhere. And we have to say, is that true? Is it true what this or that movement or culture demands that we agree with? Is it true? What's happened is that this revolution has shifted the conventional tides of faith and teaching, even within the Christian church, blurring lies between, uh, lines between reality and fictions. Entire denominations have been swallowed up by this revolution, capitulating to the whims of a culture and surrendering the fundamental truths of the Christian faith in such a way that entire traditions that have once been faithful are now adrift and shipwrecked on islands of apostasy. What will become of a church that doesn't know what it believes and won't stand for it? What will become of a church like that? It will likewise lead to destruction. Listen, people today, even in the midst of this massive revolution, people want something to hold on to. I'm genuinely convicted of that. People want to know what's true. In fact, uh, you might know the name of Ligonier Ministries. They, they publish Table Talk, R.C. Sproul's ministry. Every few years, they do a survey of American evangelicals and the wider culture. And in that survey, they ask all number of questions. But one of the statements that they ask people to respond to is this statement. The statement is, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not about objective truth. And they ask people, do you agree with that or not? Is the Christian faith a matter of mere personal opinion? Or is it founded in objective truth? In 2018, 60% of U.S. adults agree with the fact that Christianity is just a matter of you know, subjective personal opinion. So you know, it's me and my faith, and you can have your faith, and you know, it's, all, it's all the same. Totally subjective. It doesn't matter. But interestingly... Over the last two years, that number has actually decreased. Six percentage points, which might not seem very much, whereas in 2018, 60% of people said religion is totally subjective. It has decreased by six percentage points. In 2020, 54% of people, meaning that it's going down. People are looking, people are wondering, what can I hold on to that is objectively true and strong to hold me up? What is actual reality? In the midst of this changing world that we live in, dear friends, there is no more important time for the church to have a very clear view about what we believe and why. We must be able to say what we believe as our identity of the people of God. We have to recapture, reinvigorate our zeal for truth. 
when the question is asked, what do you believe, we cannot shrug our shoulders and mumble. We have to have the conviction that says, this is the belief of my heart, of knowledge, conviction, and trust. As we do this, we confess before the world what the people of God have always believed throughout all of the generations. When we confess our faith in this way, it links us to those previous faithful generations that have stood in that line of orthodoxy. We want to stand in the same line. So let me just kind of as a closing word share to you the philosophy of ministry of, of myself as a pastor and of our session collectively. We're not trying to be new and novel here. We're not trying to create something new and exciting that's never been seen before and will totally amaze as if never perceived. We're not interested in that actually at all. What we want to do is say, this is the truth that your previous generations and mine have always believed. So that we will stand in a long line of faithfulness of all of the saints throughout all the ages and agree with them when we say, this is what we believe with knowledge, conviction, and trust. Because you and I need to be able to stand in the days that we live in with the same conviction. So that's our, that's our hope as we study this together so that we will agree with what the writer of Hebrews says, that we might please God our knowledge, conviction, and trust in who He is and His ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we take up Your Word in these weeks and months, that You would bless to us the truths of Your Word as they're summarized in the creed which Your church has confessed throughout the ages. May You, by Your mercy, sustain our church and many churches to continue without shame uh, to confess the same truth the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel. Bless us in that, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.